0: I want to say good morning so bad, but I'll say good afternoon because it is afternoon, but good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you guys doing on this 4th of July? Um, when James asked me to preach, he said, you want to preach on Psalm 4? I said, sure. He was like, it's on the 4th of July. I was like, wait, that's a holiday, like, but it's a Sunday. So it's still a church day where we worship. So good to be here. Um, let's just pray one more time before we get started. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity for your word to go forth from this pulpit. Pray that it would land on fertile soil in the hearts of those who are present. In Jesus' name, amen. Due in large part to the pandemic, current trends in the housing market seem to be showing three things to be true. If you are a property owner who is selling or renting at this time, the market is absolutely on fire and profits are way up. If you are looking to buy or rent, you're going to be facing stiff competition and inflated prices. And three, if the pandemic has caused you to lose employment or miss significant time from work, then you may be struggling to pay a mortgage or rent each month and could be at risk of losing your home. Data indicate that millions are having difficulty paying rent. An estimated 11.5 million adults living in rental housing, 16% of all adult renters, were not caught up on rent, according to data collected June 9th, 2021. An estimated 7.5 million adults are in a household that is not caught up on a mortgage payment. My wife and I are in the process of a voluntary housing transition right now. We're moving. Prayers appreciate it. I know many here today who are in the middle of housing transitions as well for various reasons, some by choice and some by circumstances. Stability in housing is very important. Whether you are voluntarily moving or, worse, being forced to move, the whole process can be challenging, to say the least. There is a lot involved in the process that most of us don't have control over, and it can be mentally and emotionally taxing. All of this on the hills of a year that has resulted in a steep mental health decline for many people. According to the Kaiser Family Foundation, the COVID-19 pandemic and the resulting economic recession have negatively affected many people's mental health and created new barriers for people already suffering from mental illness and substance abuse disorders. During the pandemic, about 4 in 10 adults in the U.S. have reported symptoms of anxiety or depression. A tracking poll from July 2020 also found that many adults are reporting specific negative impacts on their mental health to include difficulty sleeping, 36 percent, difficulty eating, 32 percent, increase in alcohol consumption or substance use, 12 percent, and worsening chronic conditions, 12 percent, due to the worry and stress over the coronavirus, that data is from about a year ago, but those numbers are probably haven't changed very much. As the pandemic wore on, ongoing public health measures exposed many people to experiencing situations linked to poorer mental health, such as isolation and job loss. Now imagine the stress and grief of being forced from your home. You're not voluntarily moving You're not being evicted. You're not having to move in with family to save money. You are being forced to leave your home because one family member in your home who just killed another family member in your home is pursuing you to take your life and take your home for themselves. Imagine being a parent and one of your children wants to kill you. Also imagine... They have solicited the help of your closest friends and some of your neighbors to join them in pursuit of relieving you of your life. Imagine the mental state you would find yourself. Shock? Yep. Depression and anxiety? Sure. The trauma and resulting PTSD if you survive? Absolutely. Difficulty eating? maybe some alcohol consumption would you imagine you'd be sleeping well i don't imagine many of us or any of us would feel safe i don't imagine any of us would be feeling much peace but that's exactly where we find king david at the end of the text today how do you end up in a place of peace and dwelling safety under these circumstances How do we find this kind of peace and safety in a world full of trouble? Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 4. If you're not familiar with your Bible, it's the book in the middle, towards the middle. If you didn't bring your Bible, you can look on with someone close to you or pull up an app on your phone. That's the beauty of the Bible these days. Now read with me, if you will, to the choir master with stringed instruments, a Psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned to shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know... That the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin, pondering in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Many argue that Psalm 3 from last week is intended to, as a companion to Psalm 4. The connection many make is that Psalm 3 appears to be, uh, be the morning psalm. Because of the past tense used in Psalm 3, verse 5, I lay down and I slept, I woke again, for the Lord sustained. Whereas the tense of Psalm 4 seems to be set in the evening when looking at Psalm 4, verse 8, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. As Pastor James noted last week, well, a few weeks ago, actually, Psalm 1 and 2 provide an introduction to psalms as a whole. Here in Psalm 4, you'll see the same theme established in Psalm 1. There is a way of the wicked and a way of the righteous. Psalm 3 from last week was a psalm of David when he fled Absalom's rebellion, his son. The authorship, occasion, and date notes from the ESV Study Bible offer clarity that the titles of the individual psalm, which is helpful here, some Bible scholars would say that Psalm 3 isn't necessarily written by David, but about David as the ideal member of the people of God, with the song being well adapted for the use of Israelites in their various kinds of distress. So, this could be more of an individual lament with the purpose of saying, here's how David models genuine faith in dire straits, and readers can learn the same to do the same in theirs. Therefore, Psalm 4, being a continuation of Psalm 3, transitions us from looking at David as a model of quiet trust amid the same troubling circumstances from the previous chapter. But what are these troubling circumstances? He's fleeing his son. David is the king of Israel, chosen by God. The Bible even says that David was a man after God's own heart. Absalom, David's son, turned the kingdom against David. Pastor James spelled out previously this turning of the kingdom against David. Absalom plotted a revolt for four years, slowly winning the hearts of the kingdom to himself. But why? We don't know why not specifically in the moment of the text in 2 Samuel. We cannot say for certain that the direct motiv- what the direct motivation was for Absalom to turn on David besides pride. But we know that this is part of the judgment from God that Nathan delivered to David. The judgment because David destroyed someone else's home by sleeping with another man's wife and having him killed. Second Samuel says that now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you despise me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house for you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. The why of Absalom is part of the judgment coming true. The whole trajectory of what David's kingship could have been was derailed by his lust for a woman named Bathsheba. Interesting note, I've always been amused by the fact that Bathsheba was taking a bath. Has anybody else ever? Okay, it's just me. Okay, all right, cool. He saw her bathing on a rooftop and his lust for her consumed him and he summoned her and slept with her and got her pregnant. How many powerful men have we seen lose everything because of an inability to restrain their sexual passions? David had a son from a different wife, and his name was Absalom. Absalom killed his brother Amnon, a son from a completely different wife. We know that after Absalom killed his half-brother Amnon, he fled the kingdom and his father. Absalom killed Amnon because Amnon, sexually and assault, Assaulted and defiled Absalom's half sister. Not only do we see the sword, a general term for violent death, living in the house of David as part of God's judgment from Nathan mentioned earlier, but we also see sexual sin—the sin that led to judgment—still permeating the Davidic house. The sin of the father, David's sexual sin, extend to incidents of sexual sins for his son, most notably Amnon and Solomon the son of Bathsheba. But I digress, because we could do a whole other sermon series and hopefully at some point we can get to the connections here. So Absalom was in exile for killing his half-brother for three years before Joab, one of the king's military commanders and close friends, brokered a type of restoration. Think of this like an episode of Law and Order SVU for any of you that watch the show. The main character, in this case David, hears of the terrible news of his daughter being assaulted. He would be grieved hearing of this tragedy. Then he would find out that it was his son that assaulted his daughter, followed by discovering that his other son avenged the daughter by killing the guilty half-brother. Now, father and son are reunited after three years with all of that grief and trauma unresolved. This is the scene. When Absalom was allowed to live in the kingdom, but not come into the presence of the king. Then two more years passed and Absalom compelled Joab to come to him by burning Joab's field. So Joab came to him so that he could convince David to let him into his presence. You burn my field to force me to meet with you so you can force a face-to-face meeting with your dad So you can have a relationship with him restored? Yeah, I'm not skeptical of that at all. Once fully restored, Absalom then stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So this psalm is written in full view and experience of a father having a son in the running for the worst son ever, rape a daughter, a brother murdering that son, and then that son fleeing only to return and lead the father's kingdom in revolt against him. Which brings us to Psalm 4-1 when David cries out, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. So for those of you taking notes this morning, I have three points. Point number one, turn to God. Point number two, turn from sin. And point number three, Be satisfied in Christ. Turn to God. Turn from sin. Be satisfied in Christ. David's prayer. Answer me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. David pleads with God for help. David pleads past mercies as a grounds for present favor. Answer me, God, of my righteousness. David knows that God has saved him from Saul, who was the first king of Israel who tried to kill David. God saved him in many battles. David is the guy who killed Goliath. Most of you probably know that story. God put away David's sin and allowed him to live when judgment came because of Bathsheba. And even now from Absalom, God was saving David. It is interesting how frequently God has to save us from the sin of others. Also, from the sin of ourselves, the results of our sin. God has given relief when David was in distress previously, and on the strength of that trust in that same God to provide relief once again, David calls out to God to answer him. Past experiences should embolden the faithful to confident prayer. Think about a time in your life when you really messed up. And somehow, even deserving a worse consequence, it never came. Or a time you were in distress and needed relief. When you knew you were wrong. God is still gracious. God is still merciful. God is still just. God is still God. Even when we sin and when we suffer. But God does not answer all prayers. You can be certain that God hears all things and knows all things. That includes all prayers. David knew that Absalom was seeking his throne and his death was part of God's judgment for sin. And he cried out to God as an undeserving and sinful man for God to hear him. Because David would have known that God does not answer all prayers. In fact, Scripture gives us 15 reasons for unanswered prayers. God does not answer the prayer of those who have personal and selfish motives, who regard iniquity in their hearts who reject God's call. See Proverbs 4, 24 through 25. Because I, wisdom, have called and you refused, I stretched out my hand and no one regarded, because you disdained all my counsel and would have none of my rebuke. Then they call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. God does not answer the prayer of those who remain in sin, who offer unworthy service, defiled worship to God, who forsake God, who will not heed God's law. Proverbs 28, 9. One who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. God does not hear the prayer of those who turn a deaf ear to the cry of the poor, who are violent, who worship idols, who have no faith, who are living in hypocrisy, who are proud of heart, who are self-righteous, or those who mistreat God's people. When you cry out to God in prayer, do you feel worthy to do so? Do we just assume that we have a right to call out to God and have him answer like we are entitled to God's ear and answer, like we deserve it? Do we neglect prayer Does our pride lead us to attempting to do things by our own hands? Do we attempt to manage our challenging situations on our own or manage our emotions on our own? Or do we, like David, see ourselves as unworthy of God's ear and answer? Do we, like David, Honor God, God of my righteousness, meaning the God of my justices, the God of my cleansing, the God of my grace, the God of what's right. I cry out to you to hear me. You are the only one that can deal with my situation. Do we cry out to a sovereign God with full expectation that he will hear and answer us because of who he is and not because of who we are? One commentator says it this way David does not see prayer as a vain and insufficient thing, but endows it with the wonderful efficacy for producing the greatest and happiest consequences. God answers prayer because God is good, not because we are. David cries out to God to be gracious. Literally, he's asking God to bend or stoop to him in kindness to an inferior, a righteous God stooping to a sinful man to hear him. Picture that. This is the image of a man in David who sees himself in desperate need of relief that he does not deserve, a sinful man who is being visited with the judgment for his own sinful actions. We can either bend our knee in prayer to a sovereign God who bids us come to him and has a track record of hearing and answering prayers or bend our knee to the fruit of our own hands that have failed us more times than we can count. Where do you go with your trouble? For the Christian, this is like making a phone call in a time of need and you know that someone will help. Someone will answer Someone will respond with relief immediately, eventually, or ultimately in heaven. If you are not a believer, it is like you too can make a phone call and someone will answer, but they may sit in silence on the other end of the line, or you'll get disconnected, spending an eternity away from God. Do you have confidence that God will hear and answer your prayer? How will that call go when you are in distress? What does your prayer life look like? Are you overwhelmed? When was the last time you cried out? Point number two. Turn from sin. Verses two through five. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. David, as a representation of the ideal people of God, admonishes his enemies. He sets before them the happiness of godly people for their encouragement to be religious. David asks, how long will enemies slander him? He's the king. There is an honor and glory due a king as an authority figure. There is no doubt he would be addressing the rebels of his own house, royal advisors, and other members of his kingdom. David's kingship wasn't an elected office. He was chosen by God. Those seeking to overthrow him weren't just opposing him. They were also going against God. These were members of David's own kingdom, not outsiders. Sometimes the enemy comes from within. We will face opposition and suffering too, but let us not forget that if we are believers, we should not entrust ourselves with fighting back or trying to make it through anything without God. See the second part of verse three. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when we call. If you are not a believer, the question arises again. Who will always answer in your time of need? God waits with open arms for you to believe and be guaranteed that he will always answer. The Lord hears the call and answers believers. Do not use your words to fill empty airspace with the fruit of your sin when you can create an echo in heaven that fills the ears of a God who will answer. In verse 4, David calls for his enemies to consider their ways. To ponder in their own hearts on their beds and be silent. Lovingly, the call is to sit down and shut up. Lovingly. Lovingly. Like, you mad, bro? Like, okay, cool. You're angry, but don't sin. Don't take the matter into your own hands because you're angry. Don't come for the throne. When you're angry, don't lash out at others. Don't speak harshly to others. Don't plot. When the leadership at your job is toxic, don't talk bad about them. When you make a mistake, don't beat yourself up with negative self-talk. When your kids, the little sinners they can be, are selfish or angry themselves, do not sin in response. Do not compound a situation and repay evil for evil. Sit and ponder be silent as james 1:19 says let every person be quick to hear slow to speak and slow to anger so let's talk about anger anger in and of itself is not necessarily sinful you have an anger that is more of a righteous indignation an anger that is at something that is unjust not sinful jesus flipping tables over not sinful then you have an anger that is fed by a sinful heart that typically results in sinful speech and or actions. However, anger is a secondary emotion. No one is ever just angry. We tend to resort to anger to protect ourselves from or cover up more vulnerable feelings. This is biblical advice, but it's practical too and aligns with psychology as well. When you are angry, try to figure out why. Why? Before you respond, what's underneath your anger? Fight to tap into those vulnerable areas. Is it hurt? Is it shame? Feelings of rejection? Is it fear? Is it guilt? Is it because something triggered some past hurt? What's the advice? Ponder in your own heart. Sit down. Be quiet, be still. Remember, sometimes the enemy comes from within. Sometimes you are the king, and it is your own heart that is the sinful enemy leading the rebellion. And just like the representation of David in this text, we are called to put our trust in the Lord. Because we cannot trust ourselves. There are only two options. The way of the wicked or the way of the righteous. In God's economy, we either live perfectly or we die and are judged for any single violation of the perfection that is God's standard. Praise God that there is one who did live that perfect life that we could never live. The Son of God, Jesus Christ We either trust and believe in Christ and find our righteousness in him or exist as a dead thing on the way to hell. There is no in-between. Like Christ or ungodly, David exhorts his enemies to offer right sacrifices, flee from their sin and turn to God. This is a call to repentance which means seeing that sin is wrong, feeling that sin is wrong, and acting out of that shift, acting out of that and shifting what you do. This is led by the Holy Spirit in our hearts. A turning from sin and a turning to God. When friends are chatting about someone and we realize we saw that person doing something they shouldn't, do we change the subject from gossip Or do we tell what we saw and escalate the discussion? When you see something that you know you shouldn't be looking at on social media, do you keep scrolling? Or do you seek out more and more of it? Do you know you should be reading your Bible more and attending church regularly, but you just don't have the time these days? Or you had a bad church experience in the past? Or do you prioritize the discipline of reading your word and cleaving to the gathering of imperfect sinners who strive to worship a holy God and turn away from excuses? We should fight for the fruit of our lips, actions, and reactions to drip with Christ, or they will drip with sin. Another commentator writes, In Singing these verses, we must preach to ourselves the doctrine of the provoking nature of sin, the lying vanity of the world, and the unspeakable happiness of God's people. And we must press upon ourselves the duties of fearing God, conversing with our own hearts, and offering spiritual sacrifices. And in praying over these verses, we must beg of God's grace thus to think and thus to do. And what's the result? If we turn to God and turn from sin, what's the result? Being satisfied in Christ. Point number three, be satisfied in Christ. If you look at verses six through eight, there are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart Than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. David contrasts his own satisfaction and safety with the disquietude of the ungodly, even in their best state. David speaks from a place of peace to unsettled sinners. He's speaking in love to enemies. There are many who say, who will show us some good? There had to be many in his kingdom who happily joined Absalom's rebellion seeking more. More power, more authority, more land, more money, more access, more of what they thought would satisfy them. More. More fleeting footholds of peace. More roller skates for an ice rink. Solutions ill-fitted for the existing reality. Many are the dissatisfied and the grumblers in a world that only offers that which will perish. To be clear, there is no success in this world that will bring you lasting peace and contentment other than the success of Christ's victory over sin and death. I've experienced this recently, and I'm sure some of you have experienced this too. You pray for something. For me, it was a new job opportunity at the start of the pandemic. You could think of all the change that it would bring, all the good that it would bring, the things that you would do differently, the things that you would appreciate about the job. You get the job, you get the opportunity, you get the new thing, you get the change that you're looking for. Then, getting exactly what you want, somehow still find yourself able to grumble and complain. David says that God has put more joy in his heart than they, his adversaries, have when their grain and wine abound. God offers all of himself, and we turn to him in our sin and say, what else you got? Isn't that what the Israelites did? They have God himself leading them out of Egypt and through the wilderness. And at some point, they turn and say, what else you got? Hey, hey, God, you got any more of those fancy, shiny kings like the people in the surrounding countries? And now what? The very king the people cried for, they are now rebelling against and seeking to kill. But David, in contrast, even when persecuted, says, You put joy in my heart. Look at verse 8. David says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. What? The people had the king they wanted that they were now rebelling against, that king, and he is fleeing his own son and his own kingdom, but he has peace. Not just that, but David is saying, I'm going to sit on my bed and sleep and dwell in safety. Meanwhile, David is calling on his enemies to sit down on their beds and wrestle with their hearts. Anxiety is exhausting, depression is heavy, fear can be all consuming. You want a recipe for a good night's sleep? Turn to Christ and pray. It is easier to be at peace when we place our burdens at God's feet and rest in him for provision. If the Lord lifts up his light upon our face, we can fear no disturbance as long as we commit all of our affairs to God. One commentator says, David quiets his spirit in the insurance of the divine protection he is under night and day. But this psalm isn't chiefly about David. This song presents a framework to look at historical events and settings from the life of David. This psalm is definitely intended to incline the heart of the reader away from himself and toward the standard of a king. But that king is Jesus. Psalm 4 is ultimately about Christ. None of us is worthy enough for God to hear and answer our prayer. That's why we have a great mediator in Christ. Prayers fall on deaf ears unless they flow through Christ. Because none of us are worthy on our own. Not even David. It was Christ, whose honor was turned to shame, or so they thought when he was lied on and persecuted. But Christ was set apart son of God for our salvation. David's son Absalom turned on him for his throne. In this text, we are Absalom. Christ is the better David. It is us who have attempted to usurp Christ's throne through our sin, and it is sin that is our enemy that conspires against God from within. Christ was angry at times, righteously, but he is the sinless one. He trusts God completely. Christ went to the cross for our sins. Christ paid the penalty for our sin debt and rose from the grave to sit at the right hand of God, the Father, mediating on our behalf. He is to be our joy And our peace. It is through him we pray, and it is by him we rest and find safety. God hates sin, and sin stands between us and God. Christ is the mediator whose death on our behalf restores our relationship with God. Unlike Absalom, we are invited to enter into the kingdom through prayers as believers and to live eternally in the presence of the King in heaven through Christ. And it is only through belief in Christ that we are guaranteed to have our prayers answered and have joy and peace. It is through Jesus that we find rest in the midst of troubles. We should conclude. For the believer, we will face trials. J.C. Ryle says this in his book on holiness. It is good to understand that Christ's service never did secure a man from all of the ills that flesh that flesh is heir to and never will. If you are a believer, you must reckon on having your share of sickness and pain, of sorrow and tears, of losses and crosses, of deaths and bereavements, of partings and separations, of vexations and disappointments, so long as you are in the body. Christ never undertakes that you shall get to heaven without these. He has undertaken that all who come to him shall have all things pertaining to life and godliness. But he has never undertaken that he will make them prosperous or rich, or healthy, and that death and sorrow shall never come to their family. When trials come, we are to pray. Turn to Christ. Turn from sin. Find satisfaction in him. For the unbeliever, how can you, how can you end up in a place of peace and dwelling in safety under trying circumstances? How do you find this kind of peace and safety in a world full of trouble? You turn to Christ, you turn from sin, you find satisfaction in him, and then you pray. I haven't been a Christian all of my life. I once was lost in darkest night yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that God would own a rebel to his will. And if God had not loved me first, I would refuse him still. But as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, he looked upon my helpless state, And led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. He suffered in my place. He bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. Now I am his alone and live so all might see. The strength to follow his commands could never come from me. O Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose, and let my song forever be, my only boast is you. I pray that you too can one day sing this same song in truth, because your heart has turned to Christ, turned from sin, and is satisfied in him. Let us pray. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing sinful men to pray to you and for those that believe in you to have confidence that you will answer our prayers. I pray that all in this room could sit and ponder in their heart what their relationship is like with you, that all could turn to Christ, turn from sin, and be satisfied in you. In Jesus' name, amen.